everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Feed That Nation. I'm your host, Natalie Nation, and today we're going to talk about a topic that is near and dear to my heart, vegetables. I'm a senior dietetics major at St. Catherine University in St. Paul, Minnesota, so most of my coursework has been heavily related to nutrition and food. I always say I can tell I'm going into the right profession because I absolutely love doing the homework and readings for my nutrition classes and learning more about food and how our bodies use it. Considering how much I love nutrition, it's ironic that something a lot of people don't know is I am an ex-vegetable hater. I'll be completely honest. For most of my life, I avoided vegetables at all costs. Whether it was the green veggies my mom would serve with dinner, the baby carrots plopped onto my lunch tray, or the lettuce and tomato that always managed to sneak their way into my sub sandwiches, I avoided vegetables like the plague. My parents still give me a hard time about this, but there was a time in my life when I would sneak broccoli off of my plate at the dinner table and hide it right underneath the tabletop. It would typically be found weeks later, shriveled up and dried, much to my parents' dismay and amusement. My journey towards enjoying vegetables started when I decided that I wanted to study nutrition and become a registered dietitian. I was almost 18, a senior in high school, and finally realized that my lifelong love of cooking and interest in healthcare actually had a career path with a name, dietetics. However, when I told my best friend that I wanted to study nutrition and become an RD, I think the actual words out of her mouth were, but you don't eat any vegetables. Thanks to her, I saw the one flaw in my grand plan for the rest of my life. I couldn't be a dietitian and not eat my vegetables. That would be awfully hypocritical. So I decided I wanted to change my ways. I started trying to eat vegetables, slowly. Very slowly. And it was difficult. A lifetime habit of avoiding anything and everything green was difficult to break. It frustrated me that I couldn't just like eating vegetables like so many people I knew. I couldn't imagine a time when I might ever crave a salad or willingly take seconds of a vegetable at a meal. I thought I was very alone in my silent pursuit of vegetable nirvana. Once I got into my nutrition classes at college, I started to learn why my dislike for vegetables, as well as the picky eating preferences of me, my friends, and millions of people worldwide is so challenging to overcome. To learn more about how people develop taste preferences and how those taste preferences can change over time, I spoke to Dr. Nula Babowski. Nula has a PhD in food science from the University of Minnesota. Her research has been in the area of biological and environmental determinants of taste preference. She is currently an assistant professor in the Nutrition and Exercise Science Department at St. Catherine University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Before we began, I asked Nula to describe her field of study, biological and environmental determinants of taste preference. Sure. Um, so it primarily means that um, I'm interested in both the genetic factors that determine how much someone likes a taste as well as the environmental factors. So how you can um, manipulate the foods that people are eating or how much they're eating by just basically repeatedly exposing them to a taste to try and um, change their taste preferences. I began our discussion by asking Nula about a journal article I read where researchers attempted to, al to alter taste preferences in infants by altering the foods that their mothers were eating. 
Yeah, so um, a little bit more detail about that study. Basically, what they did for that is they were interested in um, whether or not when you expose a baby to certain tastes and flavors while they're both in utero or through breastfeeding, um, whether or not that could actually alter a child's taste preferences. And so they had two groups of women who participated in the study. One group received um, carrot juice that they were supposed to drink three times per week during the last trimester of pregnancy. And the other group drank the same carrot juice while they were breastfeeding for the first three months of the baby's life. And what they found was for both sets, compared to a control group who never had carrot juice at all, that the children who um, had been exposed to the carrot juice either while in utero or through breastfeeding actually made fewer negative faces when they were tasting carrot juice at weaning. They ate more carrot juice, and their mothers perceived their children as liking the taste of the carrot juice more. So the exciting stuff about that work was it really, for the first time, set the stage for this understanding that we do have some control in changing a child's taste preferences from very early in life. And we also know that once that happens, you're really setting the stage for um, healthier dietary intakes throughout the lifespan. What an interesting study. I am a little jealous of the researchers whose job it was to watch the babies make faces. That just sounds so cute. When the babies are happy, anyway. (laughs) That's true. So with the biological determinants of taste preference, that's like genetics and it's in our DNA. So can you talk a little bit about where that started? Like, why do we as humans have certain biological taste preferences? So when we're talking about taste, what we know is that just beyond thinking beyond what you're actually just perceiving on the tongue, taste is thought to sort of signal, um, uh, provide you, provide people with some information about the environment that they find themselves in. And it really serves as a gatekeeper for one of the most important decisions you can make as a human, which is to ingest something or not. And so the, the line of thinking here is that if we have these predisposed taste preferences, they can ultimately help us find foods that are healthy and help us to avoid foods that are unhealthy. We are born, in fact, before we're born, we actually have a very strong preference for sweet taste. And the reason for that is we believe that um, from an evolutionary perspective, sweet taste would be the signal for calories, and we need calories for survival and to thrive. So if you're born liking sweet taste, um, um, breast milk, for example, is very high in sugar, as are nutrient-dense foods like fruit. Uh, this in, inborn liking for sweet taste would actually attract the infant to these nutrient-dense foods that they need to like to survive. And then bitter. Bitter is probably um, the most disliked taste that we have. And it's really for good reason. Um, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, when we were hunters and gatherers, we think that bitterness would have been the cue for your body to say, what you're about to ingest is potentially poisonous, so don't eat it. And so it's an immediate response, um, typically, again, disliked. And the idea there is that it actually serves a protective function. The downside, of course, is we live in a world today where we don't necessarily need these taste preferences once we reach a certain age to guide us. Certainly before you can make your own decisions, you do. But as adults, of course, we're in a world now where um, we are absolutely surrounded by sweet and salty foods. um, And it can become really, really difficult to actually 
increase your liking for bitter taste when you have these um, evolutionary determined proclivities for for saltiness and sweetness. Again, for very good reason. It can just sort of serve as a disadvantage in uh, modern food supply. So our ancestors developed these taste preferences, preferring sweet and avoiding bitter, among other tastes, for their own protection and so that they would survive and continue to go on. I mean, a prehistoric person who didn't know to avoid bitter because it was poisonous probably wouldn't have lasted very long. Um, But now that we are in a society where, especially in America, most people don't have to worry about whether the plants they're eating are poisonous or sweet, those taste preferences sort of come back to bite us a little bit, don't they? Yes. So our taste system would have been hugely advantageous before we had restaurants and grocery stores on every corner and before all of our foods told us exactly what was in them. We can pick up any food and read the ingredient list and know that it's safe to consume. Also, you don't find things on the grocery store shelf typically that are unsafe to consume um, unless they've been contaminated in some way. So, yes, before we had that information available to us, when sugar and salt were really rare commodities, things that you wouldn't come across very often in nature, um, this system was hugely advantageous because when you did encounter these tastes, you knew, oh, this is a really good thing to consume. I should eat as much of it as I can right now because it's going to provide me with the sugar and the minerals that I need for proper growth and development. And that bitter taste, I'm not going to consume any of that because there is potential for it to be poisonous. Um, Now, of course, we're in some ways, as elegant as that taste system is, we are in some ways set up for disaster, right? We're in a food supply that has sugar and salt in abundance. Um, Most foods that contain high levels of sugar and salts are hugely convenient, very easy to purchase, very inexpensive. Um, and they taste amazing, right? Because mm-hmm. they're they're totally just getting at, they contain the taste that we love so much. Um, so we don't necessarily need, I'm, I'm going to say as an infant, you absolutely need to like salt and sweet because those are the things that will keep you alive. If you don't like the taste of breast milk, you're not going to last very long. <laughs> um, as adults, as younger children, as adults, um, in some ways, yes, it makes it absolutely more difficult to adopt a healthy diet because we are surrounded by the very foods we love to eat, which contains the tastes that we don't need to consume much of. Um, And even though we are surrounded by bitter tasting foods as well, it's very easy to walk into the grocery store and get anything you want. Um, We still just don't like them as much. So yeah, the, the same taste system that would have been hugely advantageous thousands of years ago is now one that can be a deterrent. Totally. And the bitter tastes you're talking about are often found in vegetables. Growing up, I hated all vegetables, and the strong bitter tastes found in them were very off-putting to me. It was difficult to overcome that as an adult, but I actually found that vegetables that were overpowering to me as a child weren't quite so bad when I got older. Yes, and that that is one important thing to point out, that... um... Children live in completely different sensory worlds than adults. So when you hear people say that their their tastes change with age, that's absolutely true. We all know that of ourselves, but it's actually been scientifically proven as well. So children like and prefer much greater concentrations of sugar and salt than do adults. And going back to that study we were talking about earlier, carrots would be considered a vegetable with bitter compounds. So the goal behind exposing children in utero and through breastfeeding to the taste was to get them used to that taste at a very young age. 
We actually know that children are more sensitive to many more bitter tastes than our adults. So if you give children and adults um, just various bitter tasting stimuli, we know that children can detect the bitterness within a taste earlier than adults can, so earlier being at lower concentrations. I then asked Nula about an interesting phenomenon I learned about through listening to a different podcast in which children adopted internationally have an inexplicable preference for the foods of their culture of origin rather than their adopted family's cultural preferences. The example given was about a young boy adopted from Ethiopia who absolutely loved the hot, spicy Ethiopian food the first time he tried it, despite the fact that his adoptive family members had never served it to him before. So that probably, without having read that study or knowing the background, to me that immediately speaks to what his biological mother was probably consuming while she was pregnant with him and if she did breastfeed him, what he was exposed to. Um, Because that idea, again, of that early exposure is so important. And we know now through multiple studies, not just the carrot juice, we've seen this with garlic as well um, and various other tastes and flavors. We know it's extremely powerful for increasing a child's liking for those particular flavors. So it's no surprise that whatever this child um, was likely exposed to very early in his life then predicted what he liked down the line. Um, And again, I'll just add here, we also know that many of the predictors of how much a child likes fruits and vegetables include what mom likes to eat. So we can we can assume that whatever mom is feeding herself, she's also feeding her baby early on. Um, whether or not the child was breastfed, again, if mom is consuming fruits and vegetables, baby's getting exposure to those flavors through breast milk. Um, and just whether or not the child has had any experience themselves with fruits and vegetables. So we can actually look at what a child is eating in infancy and in some ways predict whether or not they'll like certain foods at as old as four to eight years of age, preschool age, up to you know first, second grade. That's really interesting. And that totally fits in with a fun story I have about a friend of mine whose youngest brother was adopted from Russia as I think a toddler, so two-ish years old. And even to this day, and he's eight or nine now, he still has an unbelievable preference for onion and garlic Like, he'll go out into their garden and pull handfuls of chives and just eat them raw, or he'll steal, like, raw onion off the counter as his mom is chopping. And it's so funny that he has those strong taste preferences as, like, a little nine-year-old. Yeah, sure. It certainly turns up in unexpected ways. But, again, it's it's what, what becomes familiar is appropriate and what's appropriate is accepted. That's one of the things that we always say in this line of work. Children know what they like and they like what they know. And so if you've had that experience, it it essentially teaches you about what flavors are acceptable to consume, and it really can change your preferences. Mm -hmm. So if children know what they like and they like what they know, increasing their liking for things they know would mean exposing them to more flavors so that they have a wider um, circle of things they've tried before. Right. Correct. Yeah. That would be the, the ultimate goal. Yeah. Expose children to as much as possible. Um, repeatedly to try and really ingrain in them that these things are safe to consume, um, that, you know, once they become familiar, they will like the taste of them more. And then, again, you're setting the stage for a healthier dietary intake, which is especially important for children. This is a time when, you know, little tiny kids need big nutrition. So if we can increase that exposure as much as possible, we really ultimately set ourselves up with the possibility that when they have the poss- when they have their own um, opportunity to choose what they're eating, that they'll make the healthier choice. Yeah. 
Um, going back a little bit to talking about the genetic markers for preference, how would you test? Are there specific genes that say you will like or you will not like certain tastes? Um, so in some ways, yes, and in other ways, no. Um, the, the really classic example of a link between taste perception and genetics is something called the TAS2R38 bitter taste receptor gene. And basically that's a really fancy way of saying we all have this gene, depending on how you express it, you may or may not perceive the bitter taste of a compound called PTC. Um, a lot of people have probably experienced this in high school biology class where you um, chew on a little piece of paper. Some people perceive a really intense bitter taste. Some people perceive something kind of down the middle. And some people perceive basically nothing. They just taste the paper. Um, so some of the work that has been done has shown associations between how much bitterness you perceive in that chemical and how much bitterness you perceive from certain vegetables, particularly cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and Brussels sprouts, one that we know, or a couple of vegetables that we know to actually be quite high in bitter tastes. It's important to point out though that PTC itself is not a food. Right, So it's not the same necessarily as saying that that genetic marker will ultimately determine whether or not you like particular vegetables. Um, I will also add here that I think it's pretty well agreed upon in our sensory community that ultimately environment trumps genetics. So this goes back to exactly what we were talking about with the babies and children in early exposure. Even if you are genetically predisposed to perceive more bitterness, you can still manipulate someone's taste preferences with that um, environmental exposure. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, I'm one of those students who did take the PTC test in high school, as did my twin brother and all of the siblings that have followed us through high school biology, and none of us can taste it. We all just taste the paper, and we're watching everyone in our class around us make these terrible faces and say it tastes so bad, but we're just like, eh, yeah. it tastes like whatever. But then again, I can't really taste the PTC and I really really didn't like broccoli as a kid so that's a good example of like environment maybe trumping genetics there. Yes that's a perfect example um, and I am someone who tastes PTC very strongly and I also didn't like broccoli as a child I very distinctly remember that unless we had ordered it from a Chinese restaurant and it was completely covered in really salty delicious fatty sauce and mm -hmm. then I loved it right because that it's going back to a little bit of food science, but salt and fat have a tendency to decrease how much bitter um, that you're actually perceiving in something. So yeah, there are um, a lot of different factors that really go into determining whether or not someone will like a taste or a flavor. Cool. Yeah, Chinese food definitely does have quite a bit of salty, sweet, gooey flavors on it, but that helps the vegetables taste better. At least for it helped for you, and it definitely helped for me when I was learning to like them. Yes, and that's um, actually a really important point because no matter how healthy you are, no matter how much you like vegetables, the reality is for the general population, we don't live off of raw, unseasoned vegetables. So it's important to remember that a little bit of salt, a little bit of fat can really go a long way. And preparation is also really important at increasing someone's acceptance for the taste of vegetables. Totally. Learning how to cook something and cook it really well is definitely a good stepping stone on the path to enjoying vegetables. There's a documentary on Netflix actually right now called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, I think, and it talks about how all around the world, essentially, all the best dishes are prepared the same way because they all have a salt, a fat, an acid, and a heat. 
Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting. That is really interesting. I had a great time talking to Nula about taste preferences. I learned that the biological reasons that people dislike or like foods have to do with our ancestors and the foods that they had to eat or had to avoid for their own safety. I learned that even though there are biological determinants that scientists can measure, such as the PTC test, that ultimately environmental exposure to food trumps biological factors. I also learned that Nula and I have a shared childhood dislike of broccoli and that each of us noticed that adding other flavors like salt, as well as repeat exposure, helped us to enjoy the vegetables more. In part B of this episode of Feed That Nation, I will be discussing all of the reasons why, even though it seems as though our taste preferences are setting us up for disaster, as Nula said, why it is so important for us to eat vegetables. I'll also talk about different ways for people who dislike vegetables to start working them into their everyday diets. Thanks for joining me here on Feed That Nation. My name is Natalie Nation. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon.